Hi there, Glocal Citizens. Welcome back to the podcast that inspires a borderless mindset around manifesting a new world. I am your host, Florence Adu, coming to you from Brooklyn. Yes, I'm here for a little bit of winter, and I'm really excited to be joined by my guest who is bringing some rays of sunshine from his part of the world. And I am thankful to another Glocal Citizen who made this connection. We met uh, late last year in London. And so we had a great conversation and I'm like, wow, this guy, he needs to come and visit with us on Global Citizens. Et voila, he is here. And so with over 25 years of C-suite experience, my guest this week is a seasoned leader and connector in the digital innovation space, especially in the African continent. He is currently the managing director of Sub-Saharan Africa at Aleph Group, Inc., a global digital advertising platform that connects brands with every digital connected user in Africa. His expertise spans various subsectors of the digital ecosystem, such as connectable devices, affordable data, local and relevant content, promoted content, ubiquitous payment mechanisms, and trusted delivery mechanisms. He has led the launch and commercialization of some of Africa's biggest digital players, such as Google, Inmobi, Positivo, BGH, and data free. He also serves as the chairman and co-founder of the Illuminate Africa Group Limited, a consultancy that facilitates Africa expansion goals for businesses. He is passionate about empowering African youth and entrepreneurs with digital skills and opportunities. Stephen Newton, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Florence. I'm happy to be here. I'm glad that you asked me to be a part of this. So thanks a lot. Wonderful. So let's jump right in. Let's get started. So where are you from? Where are you local? And what is your craft? I'm born in the U.S., uh, Philadelphia, so not too far from where, where you are right now. You're the, 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 the second city on the East Coast, as we <laughs> not quite New York, but, <laughs> but uh, born into a multicultural yeah. family. Grew up on, on in mostly in the U.S., a uh, bit in the Caribbean as well. And right now, I'm locally based in Cape Town. This is where home is. This is South Africa. My wife, my son are, are here. Family is all over the world. Um, and you had another question. Where am I now? Where am I local? And the second, the third question was? What is your craft? My craft. That's a great question. Uh, the, I, I'll talk, tell you what I do for a living. I try to help Western businesses enter into the African market, mostly digital platforms. You talked about the different areas that I've done that in my career, but my, my, my expertise sits in understanding the U.S. market, understanding and living in the EMEA market, including Europe, Middle East, and, and the African market. So being that nexus and helping to scale. So I've done that with quite a few businesses and really extremely excited about the one that I'm working with right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. We'll get to a little bit more of, of what you said. You've mentioned what you do for a living, but the idea of a craft. So we'll get to that a little bit later. So you've lived around the world and now you've settled in South Africa. So I want to get straight into that. Why the where? How did you come to be living, working and playing where you currently are located? Yeah, great, great question. I, I always knew that I wanted to be on the continent. I left the U.S. quite a while ago for good in 1998, meaning I left to live elsewhere. I had a very traveling youth. So, you know, my, my family traveled quite a bit. So it wasn't the first time leaving the U.S., but it was the first time, actually the second time that I moved away from the U.S. The first time would have been uh, when I was younger. We lived in St. Thomas, which is a U.S. Virgin Island, but away from the mainland, mainland U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in, in 98, when I left, I went to Panama for a while, Spain, Sweden, ended up in the U.K., and stayed in the UK for almost a decade. And my remit in the UK for most of the roles I had was covering EMEA, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. I, I knew that I wanted to be on the continent of Africa, but didn't know how, didn't know when it would happen or how, but kind of put that out there into the atmosphere, into the universe. And after a series of selling a few companies, one, the last company that I was part of that we sold to, was to Google, was a company called DoubleClick. And that's where also... So Kwame and I were, were colleagues there. And I, I got in pretty well with Google and took a managerial director role with Google. And then the opportunity came uh, came to be that they needed someone to run the Google office in South Africa. And, you know, like I said, you mm. put it out there and, and boom, there, there it goes. The funny thing. 
Sure. At that time, you know, um, I guess you should also be very specific in what you want. Uh, at that time, yes. I had never visited South Africa and at that time had no really, no real affinity to South Africa. In fact, I, I think, you know, how sometimes you can be caught up in misinformation or in uh, perception or, or news that's given to you, but not taken from your own point of view. So South Africa wasn't a place that I really had any desire at that point to go to, but I figured, well, you asked, it's on the continent. It's like one of the only countries on the continent that actually says Africa in the name. So, you know, it was either that or the African Republic. So, okay, South Africa, let's go check it out. And I was very pleasantly surprised, you know, like everywhere, it has its issues. But as you know, as far as infrastructure, it's not an a hard place to live on the continent. It's a really easy entry into the rest of Africa. So Google brought me to South Africa as head of Google for SA, and then work took me around different countries on the continent. Uh, since then, maybe 42 countries I've visited in, in Africa alone, and I got my wish. Uh, so since 2008, I've been living here, living on the continent. Okay. And that is in Cape Town or South Africa? Uh, South Africa, Joburg initially, uh, then Cape Town, did about a, a stint mm-hmm. in Nigeria, in Lagos, came back to South Africa, okay. did a stint in Ghana, uh, came back to South Africa. So okay. SA kind of as the base, the, the other countries I lived in, as I said, Nigeria and Ghana uh, for, for some time. Okay. Got it. So it was this long-held desire that that got you there. And so I'm curious about your your role and your work at Google, because, you know, we all know Google, this big, huge, you know, global giant. And so I'm curious about what it was like growing Google in Africa at that yeah. time, like being, being in that role. I'll be really specific there, because at the time uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, only South Africa was the commercial, was the only commercial uh, country. Uh, there was a gentleman named Joseph Mishiru, still named Joseph Mishiru, who ended up becoming the uh, Minister of Information for Kenya. But Joseph was the regional director for Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, all other countries. So he had Kenya, Ghana, Nigeria at that time, and Uganda and Senegal. There were country managers in those countries as well, but they weren't commercial. They were more like building buildings building the infrastructure. So I I won't say that it was my job to build Google across Africa. My remit was South Africa, but at that time, South Africa was the only uh, revenue-producing country in sub-Saharan Africa. What was really exciting for me was that I got to take over Google South Africa during the World Cup, during during South Africa hosting the World Cup, and Google gets involved with many initiatives when it comes to things like that. So you get a very deep and quick dive to meet government officials, presidents, ministers of this, ministers of that. And at least in those early days, with Google being the only economic engine uh, at the time in sub-Saharan Africa, you got to be, I got to be part of lots of conversations of what this might look like across the continent. So worked very closely with Joseph. It was exciting. Uh, the, 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 if anyone you know who has worked for Google before uh, for, for me, I was a startup guy. I liked startups and I liked to build things and, and to sell them and, and have a lot of control. That's one thing you don't get a lot of at Google. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. It's a big, massive ship and you learn a lot. You work with incredibly intelligent people. I, I think what it taught me was my first step into understanding how to be an effective colleague. Oh, Does that make sense? Okay. You yes, know, you're, you're yes, a cog, yes, but how can you yes. be an effective cog? And that was probably the the first role where you know I had to I had to grapple with that. Hmm, that is so interesting because I feel like the idea of being effective or impactful when you are in a machine and differentiating yourself in those kinds of ways is a is a real skill. So how did you go about building that skill? And and then I guess you now you've worked you work for more companies and some more startup and some larger. How do you translate that on a smaller scale as well? I'll I'll be again transparent. I don't know if that first role 
if I if I truly mastered that skill in that first role. It was my, as I said, my first foray into mm. so imagine building mm. companies and those companies you're you're the MD and you're part of the team that helps sell the company and then to this big company. And I remember there was a gentleman at the time who was running uh, Google for EMEA, Nikesh Arora. And Nikesh, anyone who knows Nikesh, he's infamous. He sat me down. He said, listen, Stephen, I like you. And, you know, thank you for your assistance <laughs> in bringing DoubleClick in, in, into the fold. At the time, I was head of the ad exchange for DoubleClick for Europe and Eastern Africa. And the ad exchange is what we currently know as like kind of like the grandfather of programmatic buying. So th- this was the platform that, you know, kind of this is why one of the biggest reasons why Google bought DoubleClick. And I ran, I ran it for EMEA. And he said to me, point blank, you can um, continue to be the head of DoubleClick platform. And we're going to figure out how to integrate this into our platform over the next two, three years. So you can go sit in that corner over there and be the head of that thing. Or, <laughs> you're like, would there be any other choice? Or you can come and work directly for Google and uh, you have a background in analytics. We need someone at Google Analytics and you can help help with the transition of double click into into Google. And it was one of those situations mm. like, you know, like, well, okay, well, I, not really a choice. <laughs> you, you made it quite clear, but right. at that moment you knew you're about to go into something that is a, a lot different than what you were in before, a lot bigger. Uh, you can learn a lot. But yeah. One yeah. thing I think that I, you know, so far in my career, I get along with people. You know, I, I, I endear myself to individuals. Uh, I don't have a problem with that level of politics and you know took that role on did well enough in that role that when the role for south africa became available i was asked would you like to take this on Uh, Mm. most definitely but Mm -hmm. you know what you find out when you're in a role like that is that for google one billion dollars that's when people wake up one billion is like the number that says let's pay attention so anything less than that you are a cog and, and you can have impact, but you have to understand how to how to be an effective or impactful cog there. And and I think that's mm, mm-hmm. I don't know if I truly understood at that point. I was too fresh and too too new. Sure. You know, but but the experience was incredible. The opportunity to see that that is a thing, right? To see that mm-hmm. that is a thing mm-hmm. was was needed. Mm-hmm. And it started a process, if that makes sense, of of yeah. to get me to where I am now. And the exposure. I mean, the great thing is that imagine the dream was to come and work in Africa and that part tick. Okay, done. Now, you know, I know 54 countries, a lot of stuff going on in Africa, big place, but also very small in the sense of mm-hmm. those individuals who sit in a certain space across the continent yeah. are a limited number of people. Yeah. So I couldn't have asked for a better introduction to the continent. I mean, I'm, I'm there with yeah. a company that your your business card, when you show that card, I don't care who it is, that they're willing to meet you. I got to meet the president, Zuma. I got to meet the ex-president. I got to meet Nelson Mandela at his house on his birthday. You know, wow. you get access to people that that you you would never have access to, to before. But now the question becomes, the card is fine. The card is powerful. But when the card goes away, do I still want to see you? And luckily, they did. So I, I was, I was, I couldn't have asked for a, a better situation. Yeah, very interesting that you, you know, took us down that path. And one thing that you said that is core to who you are, where you are, is that this digital space you started in the ad space. And I think that people don't recognize that the engine that runs the internet is advertising. That's at least my observation. There's just, you know, the money, the commerce, it is all about advertising. So can you give us a little bit of a 101? Because I was doing economic development at the times when DoubleClick, I have, (laughs) and I still have, I have two big, huge laundry bags that say DoubleClick from the days of of the the dot-com boom and dot-com parties. And so, so when you think about how advertising has changed, transitioned, and really kind of is a huge, can you give us some you know, just stats, data, just just give us an understanding of what in, um, internet advertising is all about? Okay, I'll, I'll give you kind of a, a older to, to where we are now, right? You, yes. You basically yes. had search, and people of a certain age group might remember 
AOL and might remember you know, mm-hmm. FreeServe or you know Yahoo, all, all these platforms where you would type in something and you would find a result. Right? Yep. Before Google came along, those results were mostly paid for and purely paid for search marketing. If I pay the most, I can go to the top. Google started this whole thing about relevance, not just pay the most, because we don't want to just put whomever that pays at the top. We want our we want to be user focused. We still want to make well initially not make money, but at some point we still want to make money. And the idea became user focus should be a combination of relevance and price and using a bidding platform. So that was search. So whenever people were looking at things, that was that type of marketing. Then you had display, old school banners, those those pictures you would see that you would click on to go to something. At that time, early days, Google did not have a display uh, display play. DoubleClick became one of the biggest players for display. So when Google thought about digital marketing inclusive of, at that time, search and display, it was either going to be built by Google, which I'm sure they could have done, or bought, you know, acquired. Because of DoubleClick's traction, and I guess the 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 philosophy and the mentality of the way DoubleClick was working and how that fit with Google, the acquisition became a thing. So early days we had search and we had we had display. Now you have all sorts of other things. You have uh, native advertising. That's when I'm looking at a at a website and there is an advert, but the advert is like an advertorial and it kind of makes me think that it has to do with what I'm reading and you know all these different versions. It's still a part of display. But but now the big thing is, or the other big thing that's added on is social media. Right? So, okay, basically search, then of course display, and now we have these platforms, the Instagrams, the TikToks, the, the, the meta universe, uh, whether it be Facebook, Threads, whatever, X, whatever it may be, Spotify, Snapchat, and more and more people are spending more and more time in those social media platforms. Now, of course, that's also an opportunity for eyes. If we go back to the old school advertising, reach and frequency, you know, a billboard, a, a newspaper, a radio show, a TV show, what is your reach? How many people do you reach and how often? But now we're on this digital platform. Search, when I'm actively looking for something, is always going to be uh, in the mix, I can type in. Display is always going to be in the mix as well. But now I'm also spending time on my preferred platform, social media or preferred platforms. And to your point, it still has to be monetized, right? So advertising keeps that engine going. Those platforms, basically, they monetize their user base. And the way they monetize that user base is through usually some sort of advert. Uh, there are some platforms, let's say I'm a Spotify premium member or I'm an Apple member in most countries. I think even Apple is looking at a monetization, uh, non-membership monetization now in some countries. But there are some co- companies will say, if you want to pay me for a subscription fee, I can take the adverts away, right? But I've got to make money off of you somehow. Either you pay or, or, or you pay with your attention. And social media, as as you know, I don't have to tell you, is on the rise. More and more people are spending more and more of their time on social media, positively, negatively. Judge is still out on some, but you know, I mean, think about it. When do you wait? When 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 do you wake up and go look for the news from television, or go look for the news from a magazine, or a or even a newspaper, anything, even the radio? We go to our social media platform. Problem is sometimes it might not be the news, but it, it, it's, it's something, it's there. It's the immediate thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. I, I appreciate that, that journey. And, and so it all makes a lot of sense now in terms of how, and, and it dovetails with where you are now with LF because you are in that mix of working with social media and really kind of putting that into and figuring out how to monetize and, and bring that business up. But before we we talk about that, I want to take a step back into the, the the life that you've been living in Africa. You got, you got a naughty look on your face. Like it's going to be an interesting, really interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing this question. I'm looking at your eyes. Well, <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, well, it's, it's more about, you know, because it's taking you time to understand Africa and, and move around and you traveled quite a bit. And so I'm curious about global speak. So, you know, the language of advertising is what it is, but the language of people and movement is something else. So we want to hear what you hear. So I ask you to share a word, a phrase, or a saying that is a meaningful part of your local experience or experiences that you've had and why you come to value it as a global speak. I, I'm going to try to make it as eloquent as possible because it's a, it's a mm-hmm. thought it's a it's kind of an ethos but but it's it's not i haven't written it down but let, let me explain it to you mm-hmm. we have more in common than that we don't have in common at the end of the mm-hmm. day behind all of these things behind companies behind countries behind tribes behind eth- ethnic groups you have people and people have more in common than they than they believe sometimes and and my my global is is that uh, finding the commonalities in people, and sometimes having visited so many places and not being a local local sometimes gives you that ability to to see those commonalities. Let me give you an example. I'm in Nigeria. I just left Ghana. Uh, I'm speaking with a friend in Ghana. I might have been my cousin in Ghana, saying, "Hey, you should come visit Nigeria." And as you and I know, 30-minute flight, right? The, the, the traffic from the airport to is longer than a flight, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. mm-hmm. This person said, ah, Charlie, but what am I going to eat? And it, it, it struck me. And I thought to myself, first, my, my, my reaction was, what the are you talking about? What are you going to eat? But then it struck me. I thought, <laughs> okay, you haven't been to Nigeria and you got, the, ah. you got Togo between you. It seems like so far, and you're a man who likes the food, the first thing you think is, why would I go there? Because I don't know what I'm going to find to eat. And I, I said, okay, Stephen, take the reaction away. Now now think about this. And it's, you, you've, yeah. been, you've been to both places and every place in between. And what I can tell you is that you will find something you know. Sure. It might not be made exactly the way that you, your mother or your wife or your sister or yourself makes it at home, but it won't be foreign to you. And just like growing up in the U.S. and you can meet someone in West Philly who's never been to New Jersey, you get the same thing here. So is that ability to go, we're different, but we're very much the same, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I even said, you know, I've traveled around Latin America. If I go into someone's pantry, I'm going to find the same ingredients, even down to Basically. the Caribbean, even down to some parts of West Africa, right? History, yes. Same exactly. ingredients. Yeah. But you might not make it the same way. My job has been, how do I, how do I make you see it's the same ingredients, right? Maybe it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. 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 The food that you get will be recognizable. Mm-hmm. I hope that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like I said, I don't have a. a, mm-hmm. a yeah, no, it makes for it, but. it. Yeah, it it really does encapsulate what it is to have uh, local experiences and and really marrying them so that you can make sense of the world in a lot of ways, right? Because you're like, oh, this is so similar. So you know, let's just keep flowing with it. And it's that entry to understanding that we are so much alike, particularly us of the African diaspora and and others. But yeah, okay, I appreciate that. So speaking about, you know, roots and where people are from, I'm just curious because your path was not always in tech and that's not your, your background necessarily. So, so how did you decide on your professional choices? Like how did you, you know, ease your way into certain roles and certain, certain sectors? I, I'm, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm trained as a lawyer and I went to law school, practiced law. Wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> mm, okay. <laughs> Finished school quite early in the U.S. Was quite arrogant about how smart I was, and then I got smacked okay. with organic chemistry and calculus that I chose to take first semester. You know, both at the same time, and refused the tutor. And and life told me oh. that okay, maybe you're not as smart as you <laughs> as, as you think you were. Sadly, Ouch. not sadly, but I guess things work out the way they they should. At the time, yeah. I wasn't resilient enough to soldier on. I actually failed my first sure. class in my life, and I couldn't understand it. I couldn't 
it, I don't, I don't fail. This is, this is make any sense. And you know, it was, my, it was a reaction. And I ended up studying bioethics and the law. So kind of like a medical. Mm-hmm. So very far from what, where I am right now. When, when I finished mm-hmm. school, I'm, I'm, I won't. I'm a man in his fifties. When I finished school, mm-hmm. there was really no roles in tech. There wasn't in tech, yes, but not in the internet. The internet was still kind of, yeah, new. yeah. So yeah. how did I end up here? It was more. I grew up very happy that my parents allowed me to have lots of different experiences and and did not force me. You know, you must be this. You must be that. Or you know, like. My, when, when I told my mom and dad, I don't want to do law anymore, no one said to me, no, no, you're going to waste your life. It, there was never this this forced down of, it's, I'm sure you're going to be successful at what you do. I want you to. So I had that freedom. Also had that freedom growing up and, and that expectation that I would get involved in many things. And, and let me explain what I mean about that. From the time that I started working to now, I've done things in my early days like warehouse working, packed boxes. I've worked in construction with my father building houses. I've waited tables. I've done cold sales on telephone. I was a, a, a male nurse where I took care of an elderly man who was 105 years old. I've done so many different things. And I say that to say, I realize that in everything that I did, there's something that I can learn. It's not who I am. Like, for example, I can serve you food, but I'm not a servant. There's something to be learned in serving. And, and I, I always looked at everything like there is a tool or a set of tools or skills in this thing that I need to learn and I need to take out. I might not end up doing this thing. I, when my father had a construction company, I'm his eldest son. In his mind, we're going to be bricklayers. You're, you're, you're my boy, Newton and Sons. I didn't see that mm-hmm. as my future. However, I poured myself into that into that role when I did it because there were things to be learned in that role. So, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. how did I end up here? When I left law, there was a company called LexisNexis. Mm-hmm. LexisNexis, owned by a company called Reed Elsevier, they made a lot of textbooks, a lot of professional textbooks, mm-hmm. legal books, medical books. And they kind of had this idea that libraries, because when I was practicing law, you would go to a library, you would get a treatise, you look for the, look for your your case law. You would hope that the library firm or the law firm had enough of those treatises because someone else might be looking for that book or it's on a desk of some partner. And LexisNexis said, "Why don't we take these publications and make them available in a database and make it fully Boolean searchable, which is a another thing, but make it so that at some point we can reduce." library sizes. Now think about what Google's uh, mantra was. We wanted to take the world's information and make it universally accessible. So you had all these different companies thinking at that time of how to take data and, and give it to everybody, make it available for everyone. So I happened to be at the forefront of that. You know, sure. yeah. At the time, LexisNexis were saying, look, we're looking for people who are lawyers, but tired of the law, and also have a sales background. I put myself through undergrad and law school working at Nordstrom's uh, in various different roles and different as a buyer. And sales, I enjoyed it. In fact, a lot of my legal friends would be upset with me when I would tell them I'm a lawyer, but I'm a salesperson. Well, yeah, I'm a professional. So, well, if you do your job well, you're a salesperson. If I yeah. if I'm a trial lawyer and I have to convince a jury, I better be able to sell the story to them. If I'm a contractual lawyer, exactly. you know, so... I had this idea that sales was kind of part and parcel, one of the tools that I used the most. So LexisNexis were looking for legal minds who have sales backgrounds who could help go out and convert. Number one, I started with law schools, getting young law students used to LexisNexis because when mm-hmm. they went to a law firm, if they asked for LexisNexis, then you know you you, you kind of have this this uh, this this great. Uh, self-fulfilling for prophecy. And then also getting big law firms to move away from, at that time, having two, sometimes three floors of library into these little desktops that could access everything that would have been on those two to three floors. That was a, a easier conversation in the U.S. because 
law firms, consultancy firms, accountancy firms, billable hours. You know, why have three floors of library space if I can make it three floors of people who can build? You know, mm-hmm. in Europe, mm-hmm. it wasn't mm-hmm. as easy because they like, I like the way those books look behind me. They're very, <laughs> they, they mean when you come into my office, right. books, yeah. it shows that I'm a professional. Yeah. But, you know, as you can imagine, uh, over time, this has become part and parcel of just the way it is. So I was very fortunate to first and foremost have the environment of support from my parents who had said, you know, do do your thing, we trust you, to being somewhere at the right place at the right time. And then that kind of sparked off because you can think back in the early, mid-90s, late-90s, for someone to have some internet experience, well, Exactly. You're, you're already ahead of the yeah. curve. You can write your ticket. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Wow. Wow. That's that's a that's a great story, and it it takes us in a great, I guess, framework for then you thinking and becoming an entrepreneur, right? And so, tell us about Illuminate Africa, the Illuminate Africa Group. How how did you become? So you moved to to Africa, and you you already kind of had a vision, but how then did you decide that you know? getting these businesses to where they needed to be was what you wanted to do. Yeah, I guess it's like a, a look at what you're actually doing and, and looking at it not so much as a, like, a, I would say hyper-focused, but more like a, a, a kind of step back and see what it is. And let me, let me explain. I, I think DoubleClick set a seed in my mind. And that seed was, if you think about DoubleClick, if you know anything about it, it basically was a platform to help facilitate transactions. The idea is, how do I ease friction, increase efficiency? Now, the thing that they wanted to ease friction and increase efficiency for was serving ads to websites. In the old days, I would call you up. You were the publisher or or the sales director of site A, B, or C. I'd call you and say, hey, you know, Flo, I'd like to book some slots onto your platform and, you know, Maybe I would pay X amount and have the run of the site for X amount of time. And DoubleClick said, that does, that's not very efficient. There's a faster way to do that. And we use technology to be able to sell every, every impression that's available. And initially, companies were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I like it the old school way, just like the guys with the library. I like the books behind me. I, I don't want to, you know. Um, but over time, efficiency wins over time, right? So I started looking at what did I do for Google? What did I do for Imovi? What have I done for these companies I'm working for? I am helping them access a market that they don't know a lot about. And, and why me? Why, why, why would they choose me? Well, you know, they say, you know, in, in, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king, right? Or the one-eyed woman is king. You know, and I know, they call Africa the dark continent. My take on that is because there's not a lot of information. Right. So even the name Illuminate Africa Group, it wasn't about Illuminati or it's about turning the light on. Right. Turning the light on. So here's someone who I can show you my credentials from the U.S. and I can speak with you about the culture of the U.S. because that's where I was born. I can speak with you about the culture of of, of Europe, Middle East Africa. I spent a lot of time there. My grandparents from Jamaica, family there. From youth, I spent time there. But I also know about this continent. And I know enough about this continent and enough about your continent and enough about how you do business that there's a pair of trusted hands. Oh, I'll help to sell this company to this company, help to sell this company to Google. You you understand what I'm saying? So I started looking at this going, really, no matter what your business is, I don't care what it is. It's almost like a consultancy mindset. A good consultant Mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. talk to you about any business because end of the day, here's a platform. This is your thing. This is your target audience. How do I get your thing to that target audience in the least, uh, in the most efficient way with the least amount of friction? Double click, right? That's the double click flat platform. So I started to think to myself, it doesn't matter what it is. It's the same principle, right? I'm not stupid. I can figure out this. Oh, the, the, the part that you have to be careful of, of course, is Anyone in their business, they always think it is very different from everything else. So I don't want to, you kind of have to play that game of, I know your business is very unique, right? I I know the food in Ghana is very specific, but let me show you how 
it might be somewhat like this and how this might apply. You, you understand? Mm-hmm. It's a very mm-hmm. basic principle that I start to use for different, different functions. And, and then what happens is, even though in my spot, I want to stick with digital platforms because there are companies in the West who want access to the 1.8 billion growing population in Africa. This is where growth is. If you're going to have any social media platform that's going to be successful over the next 10 years, it has to be here as well. As you can imagine, when you are someone who has been in those different places and you're here, you might get a call one day about, I'm trying to find gold or I'm trying to find oil. I don't care what it is. I just know that I need some access to something in Africa and you're a guy there. Luckily with our company, and luckily because of our circles and, and the work that we've done, it's been really great because we haven't had to go out and look for clients. Like literally one will come after the other after the other. And it's because you're, you're making this bridge that, you know, I guess is, I won't say unique because I know that we are not the only company that does this or can do this, but there aren't many. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, um, it reminds me, and, and I've done this kind of work in the production space in, in Ghana is kind of the fixer, right? So you're, you're in a lot of ways coming in on the level where you're, you're pulling and pushing a lot of levers that help to create what is the final production. And, and so, okay. And so you, you mentioned something that's kind of interesting in terms of how to get people to think differently. So I want to ask you about your own mindset hacks. And so what is your favorite or an innovative mindset hack and one that you practice, one that you know of, or even one that you could imagine? For me, I, I, I'm, I'm very big on continual learning. And, and that means that I have to admit that I don't know everything. And, and I'm very comfortable with that. I, I don't know everything. What, what, what I do know is a process. And even that will iterate and change over time. Like, like I actually have this, this philosophy, Florence, when I stop learning, I should die. Like, I, I, I believe that. Mm-hmm. Someone tells me, mm-hmm. oh, no, I agree. me anything. I'm like, you should die. <laughs> because you, you must have reached you know, nirvana. <laughs> There's nothing else you can learn. Yeah. Life must be horrible. Yeah. So, so my, my mind hack is that I, I want to learn. I want to learn something new every day. I want to learn from whomever I can learn from. My, my nine-year-old son teaches me things that I'm, I go, wow, thank you. I didn't know that. Like, I'm not so, uh, mm-hmm. that, that idea that I had in, in university where I thought that I knew everything and I thought that there was no tutor who could teach me, who could help me. You know, I mean, I, I finished high school at 15. I'm going, to, what are you going to tell me? I'm 15 and I, did you finish high school at 15? Gone. Right. Like to the point where it's just like to myself, my mind hack is know that you don't know everything, but always be willing to learn. And, and, and don't, it really upsets me as well when people must be right, because if I must be right, Mm, mm -hmm. I know everything. One of the things I love, I studied bioethics, as I told you, and we're in a very interesting time where for the first time that I can see, you have doctors, you have medical professionals saying, what we know is what we know now. Yes, yes. That's what I know. I know what's happening now, but things are changing so quickly that what I, what I take as truth today might actually be something completely different tomorrow. I'll give you a, a, an example. My, my, my wife is always uh, laughing at me. I, I have a... Um, I have a policy for cryogenic preservation. So she thinks I'm crazy. Like, wh- why would you oh. want to cryogenically preserve your body? And, and I'll tell you why. Because I think what we know about death is what we know now. And, and let me explain. 50, let's call it 60 years ago, when your heart stopped, there was no defibrillator machine. They said, you are dead. Now, I put it to you. What does dead mean in your, in your mind? If I say dead... What does that mean to you? It um it means not living, no more growing. Okay. Now does is dead final final in your mind? Is death final? Meaning what we know of this body? Well, yeah. Well, biologically it means decomp it starts to decompose. So Okay. Yeah. So if the person was dead, dead, mm-hmm. does this machine bring them back to life? Maybe. 
maybe if it yeah, if it could be it could, right? So maybe death is not final, maybe. Because if they were dead, okay. they were brought back. Right? Maybe okay. death is not final, okay. number one. And before this invention, it would have been at least more final, right? We we yes. is done, right? Yes. Now, to your point, yes. you talked about de- 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 decomposing. There's been a studies with the American Medical Association where they're looking at death on a cellular level, and they and that's where yeah. I said to you, where doctors are going, we don't even know, don't don't have a clue. Sure. Where they're saying, yeah. there's activity on a cellular level that is not consistent with decay. Ah, it's trying to come back. I mean, we're always trying to come back. That that is the the nature of the the human being is is to continue to survive. Right. So, right. That's and, that's, and now they yeah. have the science to see that there is activity of growth, not decay. Mm. So my thing is, okay, fifty years ago, sixty years ago, my heart stopped. I was dead. Fifty years ago, yeah. maybe a hundred years ago, I got an infection. I was dead. That was it. Uh, yeah. if you go back yeah. thousands yeah. of years ago. Someone cut a tree or saw a tree, a deciduous, assiduous tree, and the leaves fall, and they thought that tree is dead. But what do you know? Spring comes around. So if a little policy can can preserve me that maybe, I, I, I'd like to wait and see. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. back yeah. to the philosophy, we only know what we know now. Sure, sure. And, you know, I, I can wholeheartedly support that policy and thinking about that because we only use what? the best of us use maybe 10% of our brains or minds in that circuitry. So to your point, when we figure out how to maximize our use of this, then there's inf- there are infinite possibilities. So keep on paying on that policy. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that actually comes into use. It comes into... Right, 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 exactly, exactly. So before we talk about the Stephen that's not always working, I do want to talk a little bit about LF because this is an endeavor that I think is not unique, but but really kind of blazing a trail in Africa and growing very quickly. So tell us about how and why you, you decided that this was where you wanted to kind of put your focus and efforts right now. That's great. I, I, the, the, the why are the people, to be quite honest with you. Mm-hmm. I, number one, uh, someone I, I honor and respect, uh, uh, I mean, yeah. recognized me for a role. Uh, and also the gentleman who used to run what used to be called at Dynamo, a guy named Sean Riley, mm-hmm. also recommended me for a role simultaneously. So it's funny how the world is mm-hmm. big but small, right? Uh, two other people yeah. say, yeah. right, this is the guy that you want on, on board. Now, 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 when I say the people, not just them, but the, the, the leaders themselves, the, the, the global CEO, as well as the group uh, group COO, gentleman from Argent- Argentina originally. And I don't know if you know much about Argentina, but they've had their own share of extended financial issues, you know, currency devaluation, yeah. unstable government. Sounds a lot like a lot of sub-Saharan African countries, right? Uh, in, 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 but Very uh, much so, yeah. It was the first time that I was with a company that, at that time, at least, appeared to really have a grasp on emerging markets. You know, there are a lot of uh, doing what, what I what I was doing, helping organizations from the West enter into Africa. There, many of their um, appetites for risk would stop at a, at a point because at the end of the day, yes, Africa is going to grow in the next 10, 15 years, but there's plenty of money to be made right now in my market. So. Maybe I'm interested, sure. but for how long, right? You, you understand. Um, yeah, yeah. This is a company mm-hmm. that only focused on emerging markets. So it felt like, wow, you know, like finally, right? In that sense, remember I said to you about being that cog, but being that effective cog. So it felt like coming around 180 to your region, your your type of region, your emerging market situation is the core of this company. Unlike mm-hmm. this is our future mm-hmm. growth in 10, 15 years. By the way, I won't be here in 10, 15 years. So, you know, do I really care? You know, but I got to check. Them off. Yeah. Well, this is like, yeah. yeah. So that, that mm. struck me to the core, uh, not to mention the role that I was doing right before this was working for a company called Positivo BGH. And uh, the role was setting up uh, or trying to set up 
assembly lines and manufacturing lines to assemble and eventually manufacture computers in various African countries to help develop the goal 4.1, but also to help create opportunities for that 1.8 billion young people that are coming online in the next 10, 15 years. The idea is we all know that young people need computers and every country in Africa signed up to UN Development Goal 4.1 to technology, digitization. But how do we answer that call? We buy computers from China. Now, I I have nothing Mm -hmm. against China, but if we continue to buy computers from China, we are giving devices to our young people, but we're strengthening China's economy. Why do we start to look at initially assembling computers for those young people, buy young people in that country, moving to full manufacturing, moving to creating the motherboard, which means that when you have an IP idea, you don't have to send it to China to, to, to be done. You can do it locally, which means that when you have, I mean, I'm guessing you went to school in the UK or the US university. US. Okay. So, you know, my school held IPs, you know, held, held patents and had intellectual property. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how many schools do we know in, in across the continent of Africa to do that? Exactly. So this exactly. idea of not just satisfying the immediate problem, but addressing the long-term problem. Now, how did how mm-hmm. Aleph fit there? Aleph, one of the stories that the global uh, group CEO has is, you know, he came from, I assume, a privileged background and that he went to private school. But there was a point where dad didn't pay. Also sounds like an African. That <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> dad didn't pay. And he showed up at school to find out, sorry, but you, you got to leave. And as he tells it, there was a friend, a family friend who paid for his university, paid for his uh, university, paid for his school. And it put a seed in him that one day I'm going to do the same thing for someone. So we're, we're in social media, we're in advertising. We're not rocket scientists. We're not saving lives, you know? But, but what he did say was, I want to create a platform called Digital Ad Expert. And what we're going to do there is we're going to make it available to anyone 18 or over, wherever they are in the world, for free, a three-month certified course that at the end of that course, you will be certified in five of the platforms that we represent. Now, what can you do with that? Well, first and foremost, we need to hire people. So we can look at you as, okay, now we have a database of people who understand our platforms. We'll let our partners know. We'll let the agencies know. And as you know, one thing that I, I'm sure you'll agree, when I hear the term lazy African, I, I laugh and I go, where? Like, where? Like, where? <laughs> you can't be right. lazy. Because <laughs> the hustle is all around. <laughs> you can't, you yeah. can't be a, you can't be lazy and an African. Like, you, you might not want to do that <laughs> job for a reason, whatever. But you cannot be a lazy African. So if if that's the case, you can even have people who use this for their own business, use this because they want to set up their own. But the idea was we want to train X number, hundreds of thousands of people on these platforms and let's see where it goes. That struck a a chord. It wasn't just about the money. It wasn't just about, oh, let's get people to use TikTok, which is great. It's what we do. But as I said, we're not... That's not saving a life. That's not, you know, no one's, it's not rocket science, right? That's do some good as well. Now, what we do is Mm -hmm. we represent many. So if we look at the company as a whole across the uh, over 100 markets we sit in, all emerging market countries, we represent over 40 social media platforms. uh, And uh, we usually represent them exclusively. So in a country, and, and why? That platform is doing exactly what Illuminate Africa Group was doing. What it's doing, it's saying, I like this market, but I don't, I don't want to get my hands too dirty, or I've gotten my hands dirty and burnt, and I, I don't know how to figure it out. Can you help me? And what does that mean? Well, I can't figure out currency situation, how, how to remit cash. You guys have figured that out. So I need you to KYC my client, know your client, make sure they're not on any. Uh, do not do not uh, operate list. You you are responsible for that. You are responsible for educating the agencies on how to use our platform, the direct clients on how to use our platform. You are responsible for the most part in collecting funds, and it always works best when 
you can collect those funds in their local currency and give me my money in my preferred currency. Now, because we do that over many different markets uh, with most of the major platforms and lots of regional and, and even national platforms, you become a partner of choice. So those, those things together kind of made it a, uh, a, a no-brainer for me that this was the next logical step. Sure. Sure. I love that. And I love that. And folks, the show notes are going to be so rich this time. And we will definitely be putting the word out for the um, digital ad expert um, platform because it's it, it's so meaningful and it's so, so, so important. So I think that kind of flows into the the now, who is Steven when he's not working? You know, you had that was kind of a social mission a little bit that's embedded in the work there. But who are you when you're not working and, and doing all the, the heavy lift of lifting up Africa? Are you a reader? Are you a watcher, a listener? Or what are some of the other things that you tend to do when you're in your own leisure time? Thank you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a son, a, a father of three, a, a husband, brother. Uh, I, I used to read a lot more. And you lived in London as well before. No, I just spent quite a bit okay. of time there. I don't, I've never When I first there. moved to London, I, you know, the time you would spend on the tube, you would sit and you would just read books yeah. like, yeah. you know, yeah. voraciously through books. And, and uh, uh, I haven't found as much time to do that now. So I do a lot of audio, audio books, like as I drive yep. whatever it may mm-hmm. be. But who I am as yep. a person, uh, I really enjoy, I enjoy traveling. And it's great that I get to travel for work. Uh, I'm a bit of a gypsy that way, as you can tell. Uh, half passport will go or half passports will go. Uh, if if you know, yeah. I'm not afraid of picking up and going to a new place and setting roots down, I'm very fortunate that my wife is the same because it wouldn't work if, if yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. Um, so so I, I do enjoy traveling. I do enjoy learning about new cultures. I enjoy learning full stop. But learning about new cultures really, really excites me. And, and And learning about it in a way, again, from my lens of, Looking for similarities, but appreciating the differences. If that, if that makes sense, um, I, I try to stay active. You know, I try to stay uh, healthy. I have a, a nine-year-old son, a twenty-one-year-old daughter, and a twenty-nine-year-old daughter. So very, very spaced <laughs> out. So you know, I, I, I could. And my twenty-nine-year-old is married, so I could easily become a grandfather and have a, nine, a child under ten. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Uh, so I I, I, yeah. I enjoy that. Um and sometimes I actually enjoy working as well. I, I do. And so because Oh that, well yes, that's a good Yeah, thing. I mean it's, it's it's weird. Like I think to myself, you know, like even when I'm at my busiest, I don't feel I have to watch myself because like it's a burden. Yeah, right. It's not a burden. I, I'm a bit of a workaholic. Yeah. I'll pour myself in, into work as well. But when I when I take time off the family we, you know, we, my, my son, our son has visited easily 30 countries already. You know, we, 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 I, I, I love new experiences. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. So to leave a little nugget with our listeners, is there an audio book that you would recommend that's something that you've listened to recently right, or a few? Right now I'm, I'm listening to the, the Culture Code. And mm. I'll tell you, I got it right here on my phone. Amy something. Um, it's quite interesting mm-hmm. because it talks about, Okay. How to deal with, um, how to understand when you're working across multiple nationalities, how how things might be different, you know, and yeah, understanding yeah. that it's different uh, and not bad, but how do you work around it or work through it? I'll tell you, it's called sure, it's called the Culture Map. Sorry, by Aaron Meyer, the Culture Map, and I'm also okay. listening to uh, Limitless, uh, which is an interesting book as well by Jim. K-W-I-K. Um, really mm. interesting because it's this young, it's a true story, a book about a young man who basically had a brain injury growing up. And it, mm-hmm. it made it hard for him to do well in school because according to him, his philosophy, school teaches you to, to learn, but not how to learn, Yeah, right? Yeah. And he yeah. had to learn how to learn for his brain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and it goes mm-hmm, through a lot mm-hmm. of uh, 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 examples of how that works and and why that's important and why that might be a um, a preferable thing to make sure we teach our children or ourselves is how to learn instead of just learning. Because to think about it, I don't know about you, 
outside of, well, even with law school, because I, I don't practice law right now, not much that I learned in university do I have to recall on every day of my life. Sure. You know, right. but I had to pass those tests mm-hmm. to get out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, mm-hmm. what I believe university, now, you know, let's say you go to med school and you're a practicing physician or you go to law school, you're whatever, you know, th- those things are, are somewhat different. But I think eight out of 10 of us are not doing what we were learning in school. Most yeah. of us, right? Sure. But if we were right. smart and we paid attention, we learned a lot of things about life and about how to learn. Exactly. I, I had a situation in law school um, where I was I had to write a paper, and this was my paper to graduate. This was my like, like my thesis, and I was working hand in hand with a professor on this paper. We were co-authoring this paper. Now, she had asked me out for what I thought wasn't appropriate quite a few times. You know, why don't you come and? to my house and we have a drink and, and I just didn't think it was appropriate and I didn't think it was necessary. So I declined every time I worked on this paper. Now, when I handed the paper in, she noted, you forgot to make a, you forgot to give credit for this one line. And technically she was right. I, I, I did forget. And I thought, we worked on this paper together and yes, hands up. I forgot to cite. And this is very relevant because of the things with Harvard. And, and yeah, I thought to myself, yeah. how many of us have made, if someone really went back, you forgot yeah. this one little bit. And I did. Right. And I said, you're yeah. right. Can I mm-hmm. fix it? No, I'm going to fail you. <gasps> and I thought, wow. Now, of course, you're, you're grasping now. It's like, hmm, huh, are you failing me because of this or is it something else? So I go to the dean. Right. I go to the dean. I present Dean Laurie Levinson, great lady. Whenever you saw the um, uh, O.J. Simpson trial, she was always the the, the one that the, the political correspondent, or legal correspondent, great lady. And she she said, okay, uh-huh. she said, um, you, you didn't cite it. And I said, yep, you, you're right. She goes, so on the face of it, she's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But out of curiosity, why didn't you go have a drink? <laughs> Because maybe you're right. Maybe it was the fact that you didn't have a drink. Why didn't you go have a drink? Yeah. And I, I, I felt uh-huh. like appalled. Like, why should I have to go and have a have a drink to get this right? And she yeah. said to me, you're going to have to redo that paper. But hopefully you learn a lesson in life. Sometimes, you know, I'm not asking you to have more than a drink, but sometimes you got to have a drink. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you know, work, those, yeah, that's a very good point. Those work, those work dudes, you're like, I don't feel like going. I don't, okay, don't go, don't go. But when you're not present and you're not in that environment, right. don't be upset when you're not top of mind. It, right, right. It's not, it's right. not right. right. It's not, but it's life, right? Yeah. And you have to find that balance. So that was the kind of thing that I'm saying, you know, learn how to learn in school. That wasn't the lesson of why I went to law school. But anyone in university and grad school, hopefully you came out with, I'm sure you came out with lessons that are like, this is not what school is about, but it's what school is about. Yes, 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 yes. Thank you for that. That That is, that's a, that's a great note to, um, to transition us into our final thoughts. So Stephen, that was... This has been a great conversation. I very much appreciate you taking time and um, sharing so much wisdom and information with our listeners. And so before we go, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to share with the audience? Just what I said earlier, please always, always learn. I mean, just like even if you feel that admitting you don't know something is a weakness, learn in private, you know, like just just learn Mm. and continue to be Mm -hmm. open to see things uh, in a way that you haven't seen them before. I mean, there's a lot of talk about in the past about brain elasticity and that it stops at a certain age. It's not, it's not true. They're now seeing that you can create new neural pathways at any age. Uh, It's a muscle. Just just exercise it. And as you, it's a saying, you know, when your mind expands, it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't go back. It only expands more. So, Mm-hmm. That will be my last thing. Just continue learning and I'll do the same. 
Yes, I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. All right, listeners, this has been another episode of the podcast. You can catch us Tuesdays with new episodes at globalcitizenspod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please like, share, subscribe. And every day you're going to hear it. Leave us a review. We're looking for 120, 24. So if you haven't and you're listening, leave us a review. We really appreciate it. So until next time, bye for now. <laughs>